Welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click, the e-commerce podcast for brands looking for their next growth opportunities. If you're interested in improving your conversion rates, average order values, and customer lifetime value, head over to customerswhoclick.com where you can find all our previous episodes and get in touch if you'd like to learn more. Welcome once again to Customers Who Click. In today's episode, we're excited to host AJ Davis, a maestro in the field of research. We're delving into the nitty-gritty of why research is the cornerstone of any business and exploring how it should be intrinsically linked to goals, problems, and solutions. AJ is going to be shedding light on the how-tos of conducting impactful research. Ready for a deep dive into the world of research with AJ? Let's get the ball rolling. Hi, AJ. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just uh, introduce yourself, give us a bit of your background and how you've got to where you are today? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm a conversion rate optimization specialist, but my background comes in from the product world. So I worked on product development at some high-tech companies, kind of stumbled my way into CRO, I think as many of us do. Via, for my, in my case, I was the lead researcher on Google Optimize. So I got to talk to people doing this work for several years and learn how they did it. And I thought it was just a really neat way to test something in the real world and see if it held up. So often what I was doing was ideating outside of that context with people in labs, which is great information too, but we never followed through on did it really work in the real world. Awesome. Yeah. I I was talking to, I I did, I recorded on Experiment Nation earlier today and quite a large segment on how I got into CRO and it was just by accident, really just kind of being in the right, right place at the right time. And we're all, a lot of us are unicorns, right? We have to have kind of a combination of qualitative and quantitative skills to be able to do this effectively. You, you have to do a lot. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to do the design development as well. You can get people to do that. But like the research analytics side, being able to pull bits of information from so many different places and work out what it means and what that means for the client as well. A lot for of, me, I think it's yeah. the difference between a lot of the times like people can jump to solutions, but they can't always track like what problem they're trying to solve with the solution. And so it's yeah. making sense of all that data to understand the problem and then translating that into some sort of solution that then can be designed and developed in a way that makes sense to even. Yeah, I, I find a lot of brands who have done a bit of CRO on their own tend, tend to have that approach. It's this is what we want to change on the website. This is what we want to test. And it's come from, firstly, not a lot of research, but it definitely doesn't come with that kind of problem, like problem statement first. It's always just, oh, I think we should do this because it'll increase conversion rates. Or right. It's often quite often. disappointing tests, right? Like they've spent a lot of time talking about something. We've done a lot of tests where we're like, well, let's just double check that new page design against what was there before. And more frequently than not, it is not successful. It's hurting conversion to roll it out because they haven't really thought through why they made those changes. And so yeah. it'd be hard to untangle some of that. And there's a really interesting thing that Matt, do you know Matt Skaysbrook? No, do you know I don't. Him? No, he's a serial consultant over here in the UK. He made the point that, yeah, when we talk about this, we normally say, well, you don't know if you make those changes, you don't know if that's actually having a negative impact because you're not testing it. He made the point that actually it could have a positive impact. And that's why people think, oh, this is easy. We're just making changes. We're getting better results just making changes than we were testing. But what's actually happened is they've they've still got the positive result, but they could have been 50% higher if they hadn't made the change. They just happened to have got a bit lucky with probably seasonality 
or something, which makes it look like their conversion rates starting to come back up. Right. It's not, and, and also, one of the things that I often remind my clients of is it's not just about a winner or a loser for a test, like directionally, one way or the other. It's about how big of a win or loss it is because it yeah. points to the importance of that element for people. So even if we have a big loss, it means that thing that we removed is really critical. And now we need to think about where else to leave it in or introduce it. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's dive into this then. So how do you get customers clicking? How do I get customers clicking? I understand what the goal is of the customer and the goal is of the business. And I help them troubleshoot the problems in communication that they have with each other, whether that's for design elements, marketing messaging, the customer journey itself. And then you optimize it through experimenting in the real world to make sure your hypotheses are on track. Kind of makes sense. What's, how, how do you go about that? What's the approach? How do, do you have just particular research methods that you prefer in order to find out what customers want? Or is it kind of a mi- mixed match of, of pretty much everything out there? Yeah, I think there's a question of like what I would prefer to do and then what is the right starting place for clients who haven't quite experienced the array of options on the qualitative side. So what I would love to do as a researcher is a lot more in-depth stuff up front. What we typically end up doing is more of an audit at the beginning. So we use our expertise to say, here's what's going on in your data and in the customer journey. Here's our roadmap of things to start with. But what I love to get clients to is when we start to uncover things that we don't know why it went a certain way or another. And then we can start diving into things like customer surveys, usability studies. And my favorite is actually customer interviews. And there's some really interesting and surprising tactics for doing that where you don't really always have to talk to those people exactly and can glean some really good insights just from the rest of the team if you structure the time in a really appropriate way. Okay. Can you talk us through that a bit more? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite things that we've done over the years is when it's hard to talk to the end customer. So in this context, it was a SaaS company. And so getting the exact target customer took a lot of approvals just based on if they were in the sales pipeline, they didn't want to risk the um, engagement, people further along already understood the product. And so we ended up using the frontline sales team as a proxy for Mm -hmm. the customers as subject matter experts. But we interviewed them as if we were trying to understand their process and the details of what they were looking for or what they were trying to convey back. And so what had been happening on this client site was they thought people need to be able to find all the information possible before they become a customer on our website, and then they'll take action. And what we learned in the sales process is there's really three points that they were making on the first call and the last call. And then the details in the middle, they would talk them through and work out depending on what was going on with the customer. And so through doing interviews with 15 sales reps, we started to see those three ideas start to emerge in different ways, different wordings. And we ended up with a sales page that was two scroll lengths total instead of 20. And that converted 150% better than what was there before. So they got the lead and they got people on the call to get them into the process rather than confusing them and overwhelming them with too much information. Is that 150% improvement to a, like a, a booking or an actual paying customer? Yeah. 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 I mean, it, I think with, with B2B, a lot of it comes in, in those situations. Yeah. You, you want to have enough information on that page to get people to book a call. That's it. You don't need to sell the whole thing. So you don't need that massive page. In fact, you, I guess you risk maybe 
accidentally miseducating someone by right. if, if, if you're phrasing on something is slightly incorrect and they go, oh, no, that's not for us. And I think the case here where the research was really helpful was we knew shortening it was the right direction and we had made some strides to do that already, but it was boiling it down and getting the insights, not from the sales leads, but from the frontline folks that were talking to customers to hear what words they used, not just what they thought the team was saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're purely e-com focused, but a lot of what we do is things like review mining or looking at customer service tickets, chat logs even speaking to those, that team and just asking like, what is the most common, what are the most common questions that get asked? What what specific challenges do people seem to have? Like, what is the feedback that we're actually getting from them? Because a lot of the time, if someone's asking a question to a brand, they're quite, maybe direct isn't the word, but you know, they would just ask the question, right? That they want to know the answer to. But if you put it in a survey and you're asking what's the most important piece of information about this product, you will get some good feedback and good results. But there is just that risk that people think, what is it you want me to tell you? Right. Right. And I think that's why it's so important to know what it is you're trying to understand before you pick your research method. So I think your, your first questions was like, what do we like to do with that? What I like to do is like really understand the problem or the the thing that we don't know. What is the research question? So we can then tackle it in the right way. You're exactly right. Like we want to get as close to the customer as possible in their most natural language as possible if we're trying to understand or convey back that same sort of message, which is very different than asking the question of like, what's the biggest pain point for mobile users who have been to the site before? That's a different study than what are the things that people love about this product, which I think the review mining is the perfect way to go about finding that. Yeah. Or, yeah, or it's what do people hate about other products, which is always great. But yeah, I mean, the way we tend to approach research is what is holding people off from making their purchase? Just generally, what's been getting in the way, and then we'll start exploring all those pieces in more details to come up with solutions to them. And a lot of those solutions will come from the customer base when we're asking them, again, like, what, what is important to you about these products? What are you trying to achieve with them? Have you achieved that? How are you feeling about that? speaking to them and all the feedback they give you, which then tells you, you know, all the non-purchasers are saying they're not purchasing because they don't have this information. And all our buyers are saying they bought because of this information. So mm-hmm. what do we need to do on the page? You know, sometimes it's just a case of, in fact, too often, I think it's simply the case that the information is on the page, but it's just not where... But- yeah, I, we find that all the time. Oh, it was on the homepage. So they saw it, right? But we can't assume that people will have noticed it and will retain it in the moments that it matters. So so often we're actually just repeating the same information in multiple steps in the funnel to make sure people like don't get lost or confused about what was true about free shipping and returns or other types of information yeah. about the product. I think another research math that I throw out there that I think is like underrated or under talked about is doing usability research, like watching people use your competitor sites. So not just watching them use yours to find pain points, but watching things go well on competitor sites. Because if they're looking at a similar type of product and they can find certain types of information or speak to things that matter to them, then it gives you an opportunity to learn from that and see how you can bring it back to your own experience. Also, I suppose even when you know, or even when they know that you're recording them and you're watching them, when they're doing it on someone else's site, they can't 
bias their responses so much. Whereas I suppose on your website, they can kind of be thinking, well, which bits do you want me to interact with? If you want me to find this product, maybe you want me to use the search or you get to the you get to the product page and because you're being not exactly assessed, but maybe that's how they feel it, they start to engage with the fit finder tool, the close fit tool a bit more when maybe they wouldn't have normally. Whereas when they're on a competitor website, I think maybe there's the chance that that behavior is more natural. And if they... It's possible. I think the other part of it too is like when you construct research, the there's a lot of different types of trade-offs, right? If you do like an in-person lab study, like the person is coming in their car thinking about the fact that they're doing a lab study, but it doesn't mean that it's a waste of time to do it. It's just a different context. So different kinds of questions. It's very valuable for follow-up questions. And so you need a researcher who can really be focused in on that type of opportunity versus an unmoderated study. People kind of get in the flow of it and they tend to forget that they're being recorded. And if you prompt them with specific enough actions to do, and it's like not just find something on the site, but really specific, like, hey, you're shopping for your sister-in-law's birthday. What would you pick out for her? You start to hear them think about it as if that's themselves. And so I think Sometimes when we talk about bias within the research studies, we just we have to be very aware of what's there and then lean into things that will help them feel like it's a true context for them. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I, I like to use a lot of qualitative feedback or gather a lot of qualitative feedback. So even surveys that we'll do out to email lists. If I'm doing quant, if, I, if, I'm, ask, if I'm asking for kind of a quantitative response, it's generally let the answer to that question is generally less important to me anyway. And I'm mm. possibly using it just to almost like warm people up. Mm. So I know for, for one client, we did a product record, product recognition question where we literally just asked them to click on all the products that they actually know that the brand sells. And I could have told you the results from this. Mm. I think there might've been one product that was slightly more recognized than I thought it was going to be, but generally yeah, Th- there were two products that were like 90% and 70% or something and everything else was less than 20%. Mm-hmm. So it, I didn't really need that, but it was just it's just a nice question to kind of warm people up. And then you start asking things like just what is the main reason you haven't purchased this, this product? And some people give you very short responses, which are a bit okay. And other people will write a paragraph of feedback mm-hmm. and then it's quite it's quite unbiased. Like they are, they're really giving you some great feedback there. And then obviously with the interviews. And I think a really important part of what you just said too is like, is a past tense question. So like what has kept you from something? So one of the qualitative principles, I think that's really important for everyone to keep in mind is that you shouldn't be asking about future behavior in qualitative studies or quantitative, any questions you're framing people are terrible at predicting what they're going to do. So yeah. if anyone, the example I always go on is like, ask someone on January 1st what they're going to look like December 31st with all their, hey, I'm going to exercise every day. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm not going to drink. And then talk to them December 31st and measure, did you do those things? And it doesn't line up. So it's almost always better to say, how did it go last year? Like, what has life looked like for you? Yeah. What was it like last time you went shopping? Rather than saying, what might you do? in three months regarding this product. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are some big examples out there of big, of big brands that have done this, but I spoke to someone on the podcast quite a while ago now, and he'd done that. He sent an email out, asked people which product they'd like to buy, 
and that be the one that they sourced next. And it, no one bought the product that they voted for. Mm-hmm. So he just, he was like, well, screw that. We're, we're gonna, I think he, either he found a different method of asking that or he just said, we'll just produce the products we want and then and, and just test them in the market. I think that's why we have jobs, right? Like if you could ask people what they were going to do and then just like design the things and sell the things that they say they want, then we probably wouldn't need to be optimizing for that. But instead, it's that interpretation of past behavior and analytics behavior and then actually constructing smart experiments to really know what then do people really do versus hypothetically, what do they say they're going to do? I mean, I remember one of the companies I used to work at, we had three subscription tiers, which was like two of the tiers were paid for subscriptions, but both of them gave you cheaper pricing on the usage of the main product. So kind of like a membership fee, I suppose. If you'd asked customers about the top tier, I imagine almost everyone have said, no, I I wouldn't pay that top tier price, even for cheaper pricing on usage. And I ran the numbers on it and we actually, sorry, I reduced the price of that slightly. I think it used to be, it was like $19.99, $9.99 and free. And I switched it to $15.99, $9.99 and free. And we saw a higher uptake of the $15.99 model and the people who used that used the main product so much more than the $9.99 tier. So like the lift from free to $9.99 and then the lift from $9 to $15 was just, it was so much higher at that stage. But I'm sure every single customer would tell you, no, paying for a more expensive membership is not going to change how much I use it. I'm just going to get a cheaper price when I do. Yeah, that reminds me of something we were just doing with one of our clients too, where there's a lot of there's a lot of great behavioral economics research that like in, gives us ideas of what we should be testing and doing. But so many companies are just like trying it and going for it. And so they had that idea of like, well, maybe we should have three options for people to choose from instead of the two options we currently have, because there's some behavioral research that points to that bumping people up from the low to the medium price. Yes. And we actually did a reverse test and we had the option to just reduce the number of options from two to one. And we increased conversion and AOV because it just like reduced the mental overload of choosing. Oh, so literally just offered one option. Yeah. This is your option. Buy it or don't. This is it. Want it. And we, it was good, right? It was successful. And I, I think that's something that just reminds me time and again of like, we have great academic research that points to common threads of behavior that people do that can help direct what we do in the real world, but it's so contextual. It completely matters. What are the features? What's the pricing? What's the positioning on the page? Like how, what's emphasized as the better option? And, and I think that makes our jobs fun because if we just follow what's out there, as best practices, we would probably not be helping these companies succeed and outcompete. Well, I mean, the, the thing about best practices is if everyone starts using them, then they're no longer best practices, are they? They're just regular so, practices. <laughs> just, yeah, they're just yeah, regular. This is how you set up an e-commerce website. But it's just, it's really odd. I find it really odd how, particularly in kind of the CRO space and and how people build their websites, so many of these things are now best practice to do. Like having a sticky call to action, having a slide cart, having you know, certain types of reviews and all these things, just you have to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Now that leads people to go, well, if it's a best practice, 
I don't need to test it because why would it not be a why would it not work? It's a best practice. Mm-hmm. Like again, I guess related to your example, you don't know which way the result's going to go with it. It could be the sliding cart might distract them and maybe just putting them yeah. right into checkouts the best choice or maybe having fewer product images makes it easier for them to just jump right in. There's so many different ways. I think the one that I saw for a long time was like the quick add to cart was something that everyone was adding to their category page. And then oh, yeah. repeating the experiment of removing it for brands that had some more decisions to make within their product and saw conversion go up. So it's like, it yeah. kind of depends. Like, do people need to see a product page and be focused on all the choices in front of them? Or can they really, is it like being at the grocery store and saying, yep, I need milk, eggs, et cetera. Or is it, I really need to understand the fabric and the product itself. And again, I'm making a generalization, but I'd want to test it for everybody to see if it does hold up either way. Yeah. I mean, one we did was one of my clients had a shipping timer or like a basket hold timer in their checkout. Mm-hmm which was, we'll hold your basket for 15 minutes. And I'm pretty sure outside of limited products, it's not going to work for anyone. I would still test it, but unless you're selling a ticket for something or a booking where there is the risk that if you don't complete that purchase, you're going to miss out. But for most e-commerce brands, there's no reason for someone to think you're going to sell out your warehouse of these products in the next 15 minutes if I don't complete my purchase. Versus things... That might be more effective, like there's three remaining, right? It's like, oh, well, maybe, yeah. like, maybe there really is three remaining. And if you do things that are trustworthy and truthful, then you can help your customers like become more interactive with that urgency messaging versus just like bombarding them with all these things that you we think it's creating urgency, which makes them go, I don't really believe any of the things you're saying. Yeah. And then on the, the stock levels, for one brand, we completely removed in stock. My My theory was... It's pointless. No one cares. If it's out of stock, you'll tell me it's out of stock and you'll put an email capture on there probably. Mm-hmm. But why do you need to tell me it's in stock? So we removed that. But for the products that were out of stock, so they used to have, it, there was like a little green icon with in stock next to it. So I said, well, let's remove it for the in stock products, but let's add a red one with out of stock for the out of stock products. And it had a positive impact. Yes. For another, in fact, actually, we even then went down the route of in stock and ready for ready to ship, mm-hmm. which was a positive. We introduced a timer for them, which was if you place your order within the next however many hours, we tested two of these. Next day shipping and and we shipped today. And ship today was the winner. And then we tested all of these on a completely different brand and we got basically the opposite results. Mm-hmm. In stock on its own, introducing that had a positive impact. And a bigger positive impact than any other message that we tested. Shipping timer had pretty much no impact whatsoever because people were taking longer to make their decision and they also didn't need it tomorrow. There was no urgency in the decision. A lot of these people were, this was like lighting for homes. Lots of people were either buying houses or they were building houses. And so they were happy to wait five, six days if they needed to. There was just no real urgency in the purchase. Whereas best best practice guides would have you thinking we should just do all of this and stick it all on the website. Yeah, we've seen some, we've had some clients come to us and bring audits that other companies do that have that kind of checklist in it. And they look nice because it's like pass, fail, pass, fail. But so often it's like you need the underlying principle of like 
is the if there is urgency, like the if statement, right? Like if there's urgency in the purchase, do you convey that to them? If there's this other kind of decision, do you convey it? And I think that's like the nuance in what we're trying to even prioritize of what to test. Because it sounds like in your context, for both of them, there was a reason to think it mattered. And then, and so simplifying or emphasizing it turned out to be helpful versus, yeah. you know, if you just try to run through the list of best practices and test them on your own, you'll probably end up with a lot of neutral things because you don't know the why of why you're introducing something or removing it. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we, we have one of those audits we do. It is a big checklist which says good, bad can be improved, mm-hmm. but it's for us, not for the client, right? Obviously, we talk them through it, but we would never send this to someone and say, there you go. Here's the things you can go Your improve. website's perfect now. <laughs> yeah, because right. it doesn't work like that. And some of these things, uh, I, I don't know, it'll talk about social proof with images, mm-hmm. right? And most of the time, we're going to say it can be improved. Right, because or even bad because a lot of websites don't have them. But then what you've got to think about is which images do you want? What images mm-hmm. do you want? How should these images be captured? Do you want your customers to be sending them or should you be creating these yourself? We had we worked with a food brand earlier this year and I said to him, look, honestly, I don't think we want to gather UTC photos because it's not going to look good. <laughs> you know, these are like reheatable meals. Right. So they're in a container, they're going to be reheated and then tipped out onto a plate. <laughs> right. I was like, how many of these people are going to have chef level plating skills and like, and then photography level lighting skills? Maybe this is one we don't bother with. But we got, we just made sure that when the chefs were preparing it, we had a, we got a pro- proper picture taken. But I'll just on that audit would have you thinking, oh, we need to get our customers to just take a picture of their products, which again, might work. It, is, so. it is another example we hear all the time too, right? We're like, we feel like yeah. we need to have video because everyone's adding video to their product page. And like fundamentally, it's like, it, do they need to see it in motion? Is it something that looks different when you move it or show it? Is it a more of a marketing video that needs to be higher in the funnel? Or should it be on the product yeah. page to actually convey information? And oftentimes it's like, it's a longer, it, it takes more time to look at it and watch it and to understand it than having it on the page. And therefore, like, we're now distracting them with something. And so, yeah, yeah, it's amazing what kind of things like kind of they kind of all pop up at the same time because everyone's kind of talking about it in the industry as a best practice or everyone needs it or somebody's come up with a new add on for Shopify. So everyone's trying to use it. And then you really have to stop and say, like, should we even add this thing or is it going to slow our site down, distract our customers, like not be a productive use of their time? Exactly. It's why you get so many pop ups. On websites as well. I was on one the other day. We had live chat, a live chat pop up on the bottom right, a loyalty pop up bottom left, lo- like loyalty widget, and and there's a sticky call to action. So on your mobile device, you couldn't really click on it. Mm-hmm. You had like this tiny little slither of the of the call to action in the middle of the screen that you could actually tap, but people don't. Yeah, it wasn't tested. It was just implemented. Personally, I don't, I don't think. I don't think loyalty pop-ups offer that much at all. Yeah. I didn't see the need for it. The little widget. I, I, and a lot of these, they don't even let you like close out either, right? So that's the other thing. It's like the loyalty program convinces the brands that it's so important and that it's going to convince all these people to buy, but then it's actually in the way at all these stages that you just kind of give it an option somewhere else. It's going to be a more productive use of everyone's kind of screen real estate 
Yeah, exactly. What else do we want to talk about? Research. We've talked about uh, customer interviews a bit, surveys, user testing. I suppose, how do you tie certain bits of research to what you're trying to look at? What's a better way of phrasing that question? So if you're talking about like company goals or customer goals, for example, or maybe problems, do you have certain bits of research that you focus on that? Or is it a case of just doing all the research and then picking out the goals and the problems and the solutions from all over the place? And so kind of taking that raw, I guess, raw research from everything you've done and then turning it into those those tidier segments? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in an ideal world, you would... Like even if I just talk about a usability study, like you would do a usability study at the beginning of any engagement to say, what are truly the pain points that are like keeping people from purchasing today? And like just making sure you're tackling real problems, not just problems you think you have. And then if you have a test that doesn't win, it can be really helpful to run a study on the test page versus the control page if you're not really sure about it. I often only will recommend it if like we didn't don't have an inkling for why it wasn't successful. I have a good example of that I can share as well in a minute. Okay. And then it can be helpful to run it before your next test as well. If like an idea you want to run, you're like, I think this, we're going to make this big change. Maybe we should de-risk it by doing a usability study and de-risking and like identifying things up front that could be smoothed out and like an obvious change before you test it against what's there. So there's like, there's reasons to do it at all those points. It's hard to prioritize it because that you, your budget would just blow up to run usability studies all the time, although it can be worth it for some businesses at the right scales. But for me, it's very helpful. Oftentimes at the beginning of an engagement, we have some low-hanging things that we know are some opportunities to learn about what your customers need in particular. And then once we start seeing things where it's like, we're just not making an improvement in this stage of the funnel, let's do a study focused on that and figure out what the actual pain point is, not what we think it is. And that's usually where we'll go a lot deeper is like once we've like tried a couple of things, not getting the traction on it, we might test out what we actually ran to see why that didn't work. Or more importantly, just really pay attention to the analytics, to the heat maps and all the, and then a usability study on that section that we're not getting lifts on. Yeah, I think it's probably a similar approach. We'll, we'll look at where we think there are problems on the website and then target it a bit more, which I think is the way you have to do it. Otherwise, you are literally just doing all the research with no basically no filtering, no segmenting. You're just right. hoping you stumble across something, which, I mean, depending on which methods you use, it's better than nothing. But yeah, really, w- what we will do is try and identify one piece of the funnel initially that we mm-hmm. think is the biggest problem. And for most e-com brands we work with, it's the, the product page. I was um, thinking the same thing. Yeah, it's almost always the product page because there's some template out there that everyone's using and it's wrong. Right, it's you have to think about what your customers need on that page. It's either that or just simply the information's not there. They're just not selling mm-hmm. the products well enough. They, right. no, I mean, but I've been told on calls with people when I've talked about our, our method, right, which is usability, getting people to through the website, getting them. How easy is it to buy, find and buy a product? Anxiety, which is their questions and concerns, and then motivation, which is getting people excited about the product, making sure they can see what they want to achieve and their goals. And I've had people ask me about it and be like, well, the, the motivation piece, the excitement piece, isn't that the ads? Like, isn't that done already? They should be mm-hmm. clicking through an ad, excited about the product, and then we just need to answer their questions. Well, I kind of get your point there, but 
no, it doesn't work like that. They've made an impulse decision to just click on your ad. Now you've got to actually sell them, sell them it properly. Right. And I, I think yeah. that's a great example of something where if you take it to the real world, it becomes really obvious that you still need to think about it. Right. Like it's yeah. hard to get people to go into a physical store. So there's ads to get them there and they might have the product in mind that they're going there to get. But then suddenly it needs to stand out against its competitors on the shelf and it's got to have the right information on the box. And then when they get in line, is it really worth staying in line to buy this thing at first yeah. place? Like how many stores have I walked into where I'm like, oh, this line's too long or they don't, this isn't going to work for me, this particular checkout. And I decide to just like put it back on the shelf and leave. And so at all those moments, as you said, it's like you have to be able to find it and use it and get excited. And yeah, I think sometimes just bringing it back to your own experiences can't just be like, well, you've got the nutrition facts on the back, so they must be ready to buy it. Yeah. I mean, maybe for some commoditized products, it's a bit easier. But yeah, if you went into a store and every product was in a box and that box just had one photo of your product on it and then just the product features... I don't know, the material, the size, dimensions. Yeah, you, you might see that advert for it, TV advert, which is going to make you really excited. And then you turn up to the store and you're seeing a box and you think, well, kind of, it, it does tick all the boxes. It's, it's the sort of thing I want, but do I need this now? And that's where the, the motivation factor comes in, right? You've got to answer, answer everyone's, everyone's questions about the product and then leave them thinking, I want this now. Like, I can't leave this shop without this in my hand. And most brands kind of assume that because they're on the site and made it to that product page, that is that is the job done. Right. Yep. And it's some of the job done, but there's a reason you design a nice package and you have promotional information at the store. And like, there's just so many other layers that marketing and advertising has figured out in the real world that doesn't translate to a lot of the existing templates that are out there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Is there anything more you wanted to add about, I guess, the CRO side and, and research? Yeah, I guess I was, I, I hinted at an example. So maybe I'll just share oh, that yeah. since so I don't leave your audience hanging. And so one of the examples I wanted to share too from a test that wasn't successful. And then we decided to do a usability study, which really revealed something for us. So we had a brand where they had an element on their homepage that conveyed like why this business and they were really confident it was the right thing. It came from a usability or like user interviews. They had their own research team. Like it was, they thought it was a very well-informed idea of these three concepts. And so we wanted to just take those same elements and introduce it on their product page. So it was like a very straightforward test. Hey, let's just make sure they're seeing the important information again later in the funnel. Uh, we ran the test and nothing changed. And so we were a little surprised by that. And we could have just left it and said, oh, maybe they remembered it. But I was so unsatisfied with that. I was like, I really yeah. thought these were the things. And so often we have to nudge people for that enthusiasm reason. And so what we did was we ended up doing a study to kind of explore those motivating factors. And every single participant was like, yeah, I assume these three things are true for any of the brands I'd be looking at for this. Like, tell me what's different about you. And okay. so the research just pointed us to like, yeah, it made sense to mention those things, but those are not the differentiators. Those are just the facts. And so, so it's like if you maybe if you didn't have them, that might be a problem. But by having them, it's just like, yeah, cool. You're the, you're the same. It didn't impact the, it did not influence the purchase decision. But what it did do is like they did talk about, well, the reason I would go. And so we test out those new ideas, right? Like here are the kinds of things that I'm comparing products for. 
And so you need both, right? You need the facts that they can dig into, like the details, but you want to emphasize the differences to really draw attention to those and make them memorable. And so then, of course, we found the winning test and the, the winning improvement, and then could bring it elsewhere on their site too. So it's just one of those things where like, you just have to be unsatisfied when something doesn't work to figure out why it didn't work, not just assume it's good enough somewhere else. Yeah, I like that. It kind of reminded me of, I think this this was a thing in the SaaS space for quite a while, pre-COVID. I don't know, I don't know why the pre-COVID thing matters, but like three or four, years, like four or five years ago, just feels like a weird divide now. <laughs> Features tell, benefits sell. But it was used as a way of saying you can't talk about features. Everything has to be a benefit because that's what people are buying. But actually, it's not quite true. You do have to have both. You've still got to have the features on there. You've still got to tell someone this is what your product does. But then you've got to have the, this is why the product is so good at it. This is why it's going to make your life so much better and and then focus on it. Yeah, it's the explaining, right? It's the why. I, so often it's like, if we just think about why we're writing something and then like what the conclusion is we want people to make, and then we write it out explicitly, the explicit clearness of it is like, the, then the customer doesn't have to think about it themselves and figure out, do I really need this or what, right? Why is it motivating? What difference will it make for me to have these facts or these product specifications? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So just before we finish up, is there anyone in the kind of e-commerce world I don't know, someone at a brand or just a, a general marketer who you'd want to sit down for lunch with? That's a great question. I mean, I'm going to answer with an adjacent one. And I actually had okay. coffee with him and it completely changed the direction of my career. And I'd love to do it again, but it would be hard to actually do it. So Dan Ariely was a researcher at MIT in behavioral economics and just like defined the field. I was an econ major, made a lot of assumptions that people were predictable he did a lot of really cool experiments to show that we were predictably irrational. That's the name of his book. Got to talk to him for an hour and a half coffee back in the day. I would have lunches un- endlessly with him. He was a very smart guy, does some really neat stuff and really set me on this path of like being more curious about the specifics of the interaction of the person with the thing or with each other than assuming how people are going to behave. Oh, nice. I like it. Finally, if you got one like marketing tool that you'd recommend, maybe obviously something CRO related or like mm-hmm. a category of tool. So it's probably a... Yeah. I think unmoderated usability studies are something that more brands should be doing and thinking about. They're not going to be perfect. Like we kind of covered that in the first place. Like there's going to be reasons to be skeptical about some aspects of what you're learning. But I would love to see more brands like run unmoderated research across their site with some regularity because... We always find things that we didn't notice, that our client didn't notice, that then become an easy solve to increase conversion. So yeah. listen to your customers, but be proactive about it. Don't just use surveys. Yeah. Yeah. I found they've worked really well for me when we're trying to work out like that usability piece, really. More like, mm-hmm. can, can people just browse the website? Can they find what we've asked them to look for or find something and buy it? And you can see how they'll inter- interact with certain other features and things, and you'll see them checking benefits or whatever. But it tends to be when they start going back and forth and then say, well, I didn't understand what that was. Oh, I didn't know that was going to do that. That's the really good insight you get from it, where suddenly you realize that the reason no one's using this one widget on your website is because A, it doesn't look clickable, and B, mm-hmm. 
no one knows what it really means. And your example earlier too of like having layers on layers of different elements that are blocking different parts of the funnel. Like, yeah. sure, you've just added support and maybe that's like a positive idea and concept, but you'll watch someone use it and they'll be like, what's this button? Why can't I close this thing? Oh, this is frustrating. Like, listen for those moments of friction because that's going to help shine a light on things that maybe you ask your dev team to QA it. It's working as you ask them to build it, but it's creating yeah. conflict for any experience. I think with that, like I know I've heard some people say live chat doesn't improve conversion rate, in fact, damages it. Mm. And I'm like, well, okay, so you run the test on, test it, right? So you run a normal A-B test and see what the effect is of having it. But then with something like customer service, I'd also want to be saying, well, we need to see the chat logs and the tickets from both sides of that test. Is the customer service actually good? Is what I'd be asking. Because it's going to have a negative impact if the customer service is rubbish and doesn't answer any questions. So there's always like that extra layer of analysis that you need to do. Not just with a test like that, but just any test really. It's not just positive or negative. It's, you know, why did this happen? Right. And it's not just on or off too. Like, are there certain parts of the funnel we're having it there? is it's critical moment for people to chat. Like maybe they don't need it if they don't know your brand yet, but when they're starting to look at a specific product and they can't find the answer, that's the kind of thing that could be a quick win, right? So thinking about more nuanced approaches to using the tools rather than just like the blanket implementation. Yeah. Um, You really can see that if you dig into the data enough. Exactly. Cool. If anyone wants to reach out and find out more from you, what's the best way of uh, getting in touch? So you can reach out to us at experimentzone.com. I also am always happy to connect on LinkedIn. I benefited hugely from people just giving me time over the years. So I return that favor. So anyone who ever wants to just chat for 15, 20 minutes, share what they're working on, talk about where they are in their career even, that's I love that stuff. So reaching out through a LinkedIn message is a great way to connect with me for that. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, AJ. Thanks so much for having me on. A huge thank you to AJ for joining us and sharing such valuable insights on the indispensable role that research plays in a CRO program. It's clear that aligning research with goals, problems and solutions is a recipe for uncovering actionable insights and driving success. Want to explore more of AJ's wisdom on research methodologies? Feel free to connect with her on LinkedIn. And as always, your feedback, questions and guest suggestions are always welcome at willacustomersuclick.com or via LinkedIn. Next up, we've got Tracy Lorenzo joining us. We're going to be talking about the voice of customer. Stay tuned for more insights in the next episode. And until then, keep those customers clicking.